Well, God is good. We are going to welcome Brother Christopher Alam. He's uh, here on his way to Tanzania, and so we were right on the way. <laughs> kind of. I mean, they say Idaho's not on the way to many places, uh, but we are on the way to Tanzania. Well, at least this, at least this week, we are, and uh, and he's. Uh, maybe he'll tell you more, I don't know, but you know, getting ready to do a couple gospel uh, crusades over there in the next couple of weeks, and, and many, many thousands will come to know the Lord as a result of that. And so uh, uh, Brother Alam is uh, here also ministering to our Bible college students. So uh, we let, I mean, I, if you haven't been to Life Bible College, you're, you, you might want to think about it because you get some high caliber instructors, uh, not only some of us locally, <laughs> but I mean our guests, we bring in good quality uh, guests, not, not just that know the word, but, but have been there and done that. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it, you got to have a gift to bring the word and anointing, but when someone's been doing something for decades and uh, seen miracles after miracle and many people saved and seen God work, it's just, it carries a little something extra coming from that voice. And and uh, anyway, Brother Christopher is here back again. I don't know if some of you, uh, was it was a couple years ago, he gave his testimony, and I don't know if any of that's going to come out again tonight, but powerful testimony coming out of uh, Islam and being in jail for a prison for a year for preaching the gospel and still going strong after all these years and just getting better and better. So we're, uh, everybody ready for that now? Yes. All right, let's get, just be ready to receive. Brother Christopher, come on, and uh, let's do this. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's stand up together. Please have a word of prayer. Father, we come to your presence in the name of your son, Jesus, who died for us upon the cross who gave his life to save us from our sins and to heal us from our diseases and shortcomings. Lord, Father, I ask you to let your word go with power and let it penetrate our hearts. Do your work in our lives, Lord, and I ask you to heal those that are sick, do miracles in this place. And Lord, for everything that you do, we covenant to give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise because you alone are worthy. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Please be seated. Praise God. Well, it's true, if you draw a straight line from, let's say, from Seattle to Africa, Idaho is in the way. <laughs> Praise God. So I'm flying out to Tanzania um, on Friday morning. Um, I mean, for, yeah, well, from here to Chicago, Friday morning, Friday night to, uh, to Africa. And please do keep us in prayer. This is, I was in Tanzania in January uh, and had two crusades. And uh, we normally do eight campaigns every year in Africa. And uh, I do four in, is this going out over live stream? Yeah. Okay, then I, well, four uh, in an unnamed country in Asia, uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> which is kind of close to the gospel. And, uh, and so, uh, so that's, that's what we do. But last year, I did two campaigns early in the year in Africa in January. And then, of course, COVID-19 came and 
I couldn't do anything. And what happened was when uh, COVID-19 hit, I was in Australia when I first heard that there was this new disease going on. I thought, well, it's in China, you know, it'll stay there, China. But suddenly it was all over the place. And then I had a hard time coming back home because, you know, there were all those difficulties and I couldn't use my ticket because my ticket was through Europe. And if you flew through Europe, they wouldn't let you in. So I had to buy another ticket. I came home and uh, I had to quarantine and all that. This was a new situation for me. And then uh, all my campaigns in Africa were canceled. Everything in Asia was canceled. Those countries closed their borders. And I thought, Lord, what should I do? Uh, and then pastors in the US whose churches were, I was going to visit, they canceled everything. And so here I am sitting at home, you know, nothing to do. So I, I thought, uh, uh, what, what, what can I do? And then the Lord said, begin to teach. Uh, now, 30, 36 years ago, I actually taught in the biggest Bible college in Europe. I taught for four years, so I haven't done that thing for many years. So I just sat down and began to prepare lessons every day. And I taught for uh, every single day. I mean, Monday to Sunday. I mean, seven days a week for seven straight months. And I put this up in YouTube. I made like a Bible school. You can access that if you write my name, Christopher Alam. Uh, and then, you know, those videos will come up. And they're, if you, you know, they're teaching on healing, on the gifts of the Spirit, on a lot of seven different subjects. So I did that. And that was very fulfilling to be able to do that. And then uh, I had my team in Africa. And I was wondering how they were doing. So I was in communication with them. And then one day my team leader said, he said, Pastor, it's so bad in Africa. Uh, you, you know, you see, I want you to understand, uh, it's very important for us to be thankful because even in the, in the worst of times, we in America live far better lives than people live in many other countries in the best of times. And there were people who were literally starving to death. Uh, pastors and their families, nothing to eat. So the Lord told me, I want you to start collecting money to, to feed them. So I told my, I asked my team, how much would it cost? I thought, if we, if we supply food rations for them, I want to give each family of four uh, food rations for three months. So, you know, it's enough to sustain them, because we don't know how long this thing will last. And so I, uh, I, thought, I said to them, how much would it cost to buy food in bulk, if you buy, like, by the ton? And they said, well, the food is here, but nobody has money because, uh, you know, everything is closed, shut down, and people are starving, but the food is there. And so I said, well, negotiate some good prices with them. So I found out we could feed a family of four for three months, full rations, everything, and soap and detergent, everything they need for $200. So I thought, you know, $200 isn't much, but then the figure I had was to feed 100 families, so that's $20,000. And, you know, in COVID, people are talking about the economy is going to go south. You know, I mean, there was a lot of fear. So, but the Lord said, believe me for $20,000. So I prayed and people began to send me money. And uh, in a few months, we sent out more than $335,000. We felt, yeah. And... Uh, and you know, those, those $200, like I called the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God in Bangladesh, 
And he said, well, for $200, we can feed all our pastors for six months. So, uh, you know, the food really lasted, and, and that money went a long way. It was fantastic. We fed thousands of people in Zimbabwe, in Zambia, in Mozambique, in Lebanon, in Argentina, in Chile, in uh, Pakistan, in India, and in Bangladesh. So. Uh, it, it has been fantastic. And, and, and remember that no matter what situation we are in, God can still use you. There is always a way. Never say that, well, I'm locked in, you know, in this situation, what can I do? There is always something you can do to be a blessing to other people. Amen. And when this thing started, uh, the Lord, because, you know, I said, I prayed, I said, Lord, uh, our ministry also has needs. And the Lord said that, yes, you have needs, but their needs are greater than yours because you can survive without your needs being met. But their needs are such that if their needs are not met, their children are going to die. So the Lord said, if you put other people's needs above your own needs, then I can bless you. And the scripture I got was in Proverbs, it says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And I have, you know, it's in difficult times uh, that we put the word of God to the test and we find out that the word of God is really, really true. Amen. It is in times of crisis and in difficult times, that is when we find out how true and how powerful the word of God really is. Hallelujah. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm really, really grateful because I, I've been, uh, I'm, you know, I, I've always said I'm a soul winner and a church planter. I'm not a humanitarian worker or, you know, feeding the poor. There's other people gifted to do that. But, but I, I thought I want to make myself available. I want to be like a spare tire, you know, not the one around here, but, <laughs> but I have that already, you know. That's why I wear a jacket all the time, you know. But uh, anyway, that's another sermon. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I, I want to be like a spare tire, that I want to be used wherever the Lord needs me. I don't want to put myself in a box that God can only use me in this, but I want to be available to Jesus uh, to help people in whatever capacity I, I can be used. So, you know, so remember that. But most of all, let us be thankful. Let us uh, complain less. Amen. Americans are probably the greatest complainers on earth. Uh, with much, very little to complain about. That's right. I mean, people complain everywhere, but some places they really have things to complain about. We don't have really much to complain about if you look at it from the worldwide perspective. So let us be, uh, let's be grateful and thankful because there is much power in gratitude. Gratitude releases blessings. Amen. The Bible says so many times, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. And his mercies endures forever. You know, give thanks unto the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. You know, it's when we bless the Lord and are grateful, uh, that is when it releases blessings upon our lives. Amen. Praise God. Well, uh, I want to show, show you some pictures. That's my, that's really my, this is extra. That's my day job, you know, so... Uh, I showed it to the Bible school, so it's the same pictures I showed you. This is, uh, uh, I'll tell you when to flip to the next picture. Please put up the first picture of the Asia PowerPoint. Now, this is, uh, this is our crusade in that unnamed country in Asia. 
And, and, and now, I want you to look at this picture. The field is uh, the size of the length of three football fields, long. It is wide as a football field. And its length is about three football fields. And behind that, there was a road with traffic. And there were people in the field beyond that. So I really don't, it's very hard to estimate how many people were there. But there were more people there than lived in that town. There's no big cities there. This is in a remote area. There's only small towns. But the reason people came, because God, you know, you see, when you preach the gospel, things happen. And we saw so many miracles. We saw lame, blind, deformed people, people of all religions. They came from everywhere. And as the word spread, people rented ambulances and, and trucks and buses and cars. And they came from as far as eight hours away. They came from the next state. And they came carrying sick people with them. And, and people were healed. And so that's why the crowds just multiplied. And so you see all these people. This is the altar call, people receiving Jesus. Uh, so this is one of our campaigns in that region. Now the next picture is, um, this is another town. It's about 45 minutes to an hour away. And, and here, uh, the, the guy, well, actually, uh, the first picture, don't go back to it. What is happening is that the, that the speaker of the parliament of that state, he was, uh, he was a Christian, one of the few Christians in that area. He was sitting next to me. And it's only because of his clout that I'm able to go into these places. And so he told me, he said, Pastor, only 1% of this area is Christian. And, and by Christian, he meant traditional, nominal Christian. It's like saying all Americans are Christians, you know. It's like people, they were Lutherans and Catholics and things like that. And, 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 and so, but most of these people are from other religions. And so this crusade, uh, this was the, actually the first one I did in that region. And uh, a lot of people came. And the... And the governor was in that meeting because he was a friend of the Speaker of the Parliament. He invited him, and so he was in the meeting. And then that night, he was uh, in some news thing, you know, on, on TV that night. And he said, I had just come from a meeting where he says, I saw all these people. They gathered, and, and this man was talking about Jesus Christ. And he said, I saw hundreds of people healed from incurable diseases. And he said, and all this was done by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that man wasn't even a Christian, you know. So uh, then the next picture is uh, another campaign we did in the same region. But this was, uh, I mean, this was just a collection of small villages. There wasn't even a town there. And uh, then the next picture is, uh, this is one, the last one I did. Uh, um, in, the, in that region before COVID started. And um, anyway, so the next picture is, uh, this is, uh, is my team, uh, who, who, you know, who work with me. And the next picture is, um, this, uh, there's a few miracles. This young man was born deaf and mute, began to hear and to speak. And the next one is, this girl was also born deaf and mute, began to hear and to speak. And uh, deaf and mute means they were born uh, without the ability to hear and to speak and had never heard a sound or spoken a sound. And then God opens the ears and their tongues and they begin to hear and I ask them to repeat words that I say. Anyway, then the next one is, uh, now this, 
This, this young lady, her kidneys had shut down, so her limbs were swollen, and uh, she couldn't see, blind. she was blind because of the kidney failure. I'm not a doctor, but apparently that's what happens because of kidney failure, and she was dying because there were no hospitals in that area that do, could do kidney transplants. So anyway, she was brought by her family to the meeting, and, and she was in the crowd, and Jesus touched her right where she was. Her limbs went down to normal size, and she began to see, and she came up and shared with us what the Lord had done for her. And the next one is, uh, now this is a, 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 a little girl who, uh, she, she, she couldn't stand or walk. She could just roll, you know, when her mother would, she, she was laying and she could just roll. And, uh, and she got up and began to walk for the first time in her life. And, and uh, what, a, what a blessing to be able to see that, you know, to see a kid just walk for the first time. And then the next one is, uh, this. Uh, now this is, this is actually quite funny. Well, funny in the sense that this lady was paralyzed, lame, was blind, and she was unresponsive, couldn't speak. You don't know if she could hear. I mean, she was, she was like a vegetable, and she was, they had brought her in a car, and she was in the car. And when I began to pray over the crowd, the power of God touched her in the car, and she opened the door, jumped up, and began to walk. And so, so she came... She came walking to the platform, and there was a lot of shouting and yelling going on, and, and I was trying to f find out what, what has happened here. And there was this guy, you see the man behind her with his hand up in the air? And he, he was yelling and shouting, and I was getting a bit irritated at him because <laughs> I was trying to talk to her, and I said, I said, who are you? He said, I'm her pastor, I'm her pastor. And he was once from this fundamentalist Baptist churches, which didn't believe anything, you know. So, but, but no more, you know, after this. So anyway, so he comes up, he says, I'm her pastor. And he began to tell me, uh, I mean, there, was, there were very few Christians in that area. And but this, girl, this woman was from that church. And, and uh, he was excited telling me, you know, she couldn't see, she couldn't hear, she couldn't walk. And she had been like this for a long time. And we brought her in that car pointed to the car, and she got up and walked. I said, well, pastor, shout some more, you know? So anyway, so, anyway, so that was it. And, uh, and the next one is, uh, this was, a, okay, th this was a, a young man. He, uh, this is a kind of demon possession. When the, uh, when the, I've seen this happen several times. Like his mind was completely erased. You can see you erase someone's hard drive, you know, and there's nothing in there. So he didn't know his own name. He didn't know who he was. He didn't recognize anybody. He couldn't understand if you spoke to him. Everything was blank. And in an instant, Jesus touched him. And everything came back to him. He recognized his family, knew his own name. He could speak. So I had a little conversation with him. He was perfectly normal. So this, and the next picture is, uh, uh, this was a woman completely blind. And, uh, but she was from one of the tribes. So, uh, and the guy on the left is my interpreter. If you look at his clothing, he's actually a Catholic priest. And those Catholic priests are so excited. I mean, they want to help us preach the gospel. And they, they are a great help to us. And you might not understand this, but they, they actually like me. And, 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 they, and, they, and they think this is amazing. They want to, uh, you can start, because we, we are doing church planting in that area, and they, they are eager to help us. And you start your Pentecostal churches, preach the gospel, we are here to help you. So they really served us and helped us. Anyway, so this is, uh, these are uh, the pictures I wanted to show you to give an idea. 
Anyway, let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Now, before uh, I go, I just want to mention uh, very briefly, I have a book table outside. It's somewhere out there. I've got three books that I've written, and those are my number one, number two, number three bestsellers because I've written only three. <laughs> so I don't have a number four bestseller. So anyway, so, uh, and, uh, and so please do look at them. And the reason I'm mentioning this is the pricing policy. The pricing policy is pray and obey. You take what you like and just ask the Lord, what do you want me to give for what I've taken and whatever you, you know, the Lord puts in your heart and uh, you just uh, do that, okay? So if you don't have money, I don't want you to feel like, well, I don't have anything or I can't, because there are people who go through hard times. I don't want to, you to be deprived of something that you feel you need because there's, there's always someone else who makes it up. So we always break even. So I don't want you to think that, oh, this guy came to preach. He's, I can't give anything for the book. If you don't have anything, just take a book, okay? All right? But whatever God puts in your heart, you put it, I'm cool with that. Okay. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. And I'm reading from verse 4. Uh, from verse 4, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So we know that uh, what I want to talk to you about are the last words of Jesus, the last words that Jesus spoke on this earth. And when, when a person leaves this world, the last words he speaks are always very significant. And so the significance of the last words of Jesus, and we know these were the last words because in verse 9 it says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So these are the last words he spoke on this earth. So let's go back to verse 4. It says, on one occasion when he was eating with them, he gave them this command. And the command was, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, to be, to be, uh, it is a command from Jesus to be baptized with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't say, well, you know, this baptism in the Holy Spirit, you know, I don't believe in it, or, or I believe in it, I like it when I come to this church, but my church out there, the first church of the refrigerator, doesn't believe that. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, listen, it has, it has nothing to do with what your church or my church or any other church believes. This is a command from Jesus, right? And when Jesus commands something, that applies to all of us. It doesn't matter what church or what pastors or theologians or people like me say. The important thing is to understand that Jesus gave them a direct command. It's an imperative. 
He didn't offer it as a suggestion. He didn't say, well, take it or leave it, but here's an option. You know, when you buy a car, you have all the options. Jesus didn't say, well, I'm giving you Christianity, but here's the no-frills Christianity. You know, uh, the options you can do without tongues, without all these healings and miracles, and just be a nice person, you know. The important thing is that you're going to go to heaven, and that's it. He didn't say that. He commanded them. He gave them a command. He says, don't go anywhere but wait in Jerusalem until you receive that which the Father has promised that I have spoken to you about. Jesus had spoken to them. Because John baptized you in, in water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, when he said this, the, what I found most fascinating for many, many years, I found this fascinating, was their response. When Jesus spoke about them being baptized with the Holy Spirit, and their response was, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And for many years, I used to think, what are they talking about? I mean, he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they're saying, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I didn't understand this until only recently, a couple of years back, when I began to study some history. And I want to share that with you, why they responded that way. Well, here's the thing. When Jesus came to the scene, uh, the people of Israel had been under foreign occupation for almost a little bit short of four centuries. Now think of it, that's a long time. That's longer than the United States has been an independent nation. For almost 400 years, close to 400 years. Now, before that, the Israelites had always had their own kingdom. They were actually a very proud nation. They were, uh, they were very, very aware of the fact that they were God's covenant people, that God himself had a covenant with them that he didn't have with anybody else, and that the prophets uh, who spoke from God were all from amongst them, were all Israelites, that the law of God came through Israel, and that they were unique and they were special. And so they knew that. So because of that, they, they, they used to look down on the non-Israelites, the Gentiles. They used to refer to them uh, disdainfully as dogs and heathen, you know, because a dog was an unclean animal. If you're not an Israel, you were unclean. And so, you know, they were kind of pr proud people. Then they had their own kingdom. They had their own kings. And, and now they had lived under foreign occupation for almost four centuries. And first were the Babylonians who came and occupied them. And uh, after the Babylonians left, then came the Greeks, the Seleucid Greeks. Now, the Greeks were unique in the sense that wherever the Greeks went, they always left behind a very strong cultural and linguistic footprint. Uh, uh, so much so that uh, just, Im just imagine this, that the first books of the New Testament were written over 120 years after the Greeks had left. And uh, the, the writers of the books of the New Testament, the apostles of Jesus, they spoke Aramaic at home, and Hebrew was their religious language. Yet when they sat down and penned the books of the New Testament, they wrote the books in classical Greek. That was the Greek influence on them. So, so, you know, so the Greeks came, and then after the Greeks came the Romans, and that was when Jesus came to the, uh, came to the scene, and the Romans had been there around 70, 80 years, and the Romans were exceptionally brutal. 
They had a system of taxation that was extortionate, and they, were, they killed people. They executed people for small infractions. They were very cruel, very brutal. And so the people of Israel were in a time of great oppression and suffering. Uh, the, you know, they were an occupied people. And during these four, almost four centuries, there had been many uprisings against their occupiers, against the, uh, the, the Babylonians, against the Greeks, against the Romans. But the, all these uh, uprisings had been crushed very brutally. And, but there was one man uh, who led an uprising that had some limited success. And his name was Judas Maccabeus. Even if you go to Israel today, the name of Judas Maccabeus is like a folk hero. The name stadiums and streets after him. And he did manage to liberate a chunk of territory, which he called the Hasmonean Kingdom. That was named after his family, the Hasmonean Dynasty. But that lasted about 70 years, and then the Romans came and destroyed that also. So Jesus came to the scene during a time when the Israelites had been oppressed, and they were suffering uh, for over, uh, well, almost 400 years, and they were looking for uh, a Messiah and deliverer. And what happens, I want to show you this, that, that people tend to, uh, uh, tend to even interpret scripture through the prism of their own circumstances. And the Israelites, Israelites did them because whenever they would read the scriptures about the Messiah, they, they would think, okay, the Messiah would be some kind of strong man, a, you know, a man, a military leader who would gather all the Jewish people and he would lead an uprising and we will kick the Romans out and establish our own kingdom and he'll establish the kingdom of David forever. That's how they interpreted it. So, and all these uprisings had been, had been led by potential messiahs. And now they were looking for who is the next messiah? I mean, who's the one who's coming to deliver us? And into this situation came Jesus. So Jesus came into a very interesting situation, and he, but there were two things about Jesus that were most unique. The first thing was that his words had power. I mean, when he spoke, people's hearts were brought under conviction. People's hearts were gripped by conviction. And just, uh, you know, at one time, the Pharisees sent some soldiers to arrest him, and they came back empty-handed, and, and they were asked, why didn't you bring him in? And they said, we couldn't arrest him. How could we do so? Because no man has ever spoken like him. So there was power in his words. The other thing that was unique about Jesus was that he had the miracle working power of God. When he opened his mouth and spoke, demons came out of people. The dead were raised to life. The lame walked, the blind saw, the deaf heard, the mute spoke, lepers were cleansed. They had never heard of things like this. They had never even seen anything like it. Miracles happen. So you have these people following Jesus around because this man can talk and he has the power of God. And I mean, he must be our guy. He can drive the Romans out. And so then you had, you know, one of the groups in those men's were those uh, insurgents, I call them. Uh, and, and they were known as the zealots. And, and if you remember, there was a man called Simon the Zealot. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. And, and then there they came a point when they were all convinced that he is the man. And if you remember in the Bible, you re read about the miracle 
called the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus fed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fishes. And after that, they actually tried to make Jesus king by force. You remember that? They actually, for, I mean, they tried to make him king by force. They insisted, you are our guy. And he said, no, I'm not your man. No, you are, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you are our man. But he just walked away. He refused to be their king. And not only that, during his entire three and a half years of ministry, he never made one single political statement against the Romans. Not once. The closest he ever came to was they tried to get him to say something about the taxation system because they were overtaxed. And he said, so should we pay taxes to Caesar? So, you know, he was caught between a rock and a hard place. He can't say yes, he can't say no. So he borrowed a coin. He says, whose picture is on this coin? Caesar. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. And that was, everyone was quiet after that. And so he never addressed their present day political circumstances, but all he talked about was the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And, and, and you know, I, I can only imagine what must have been going through their minds that this man, he genuinely has the power of God. He's not a dreamer. He's really, I mean, he genuinely has the power of God, but he doesn't see what's happening here. And so Jesus, he refused to be their king. And then when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, they threw all their constraints off. And that's when they began to say, Hosanna to the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was treason. Uh, that was treason because if anybody else was proclaimed or called a king, that was treason because there was only Caesar who was king and only Caesar who could be worshipped as God. But what Jesus does, I mean, he comes in in triumph, and this was the moment, his moment. I mean, if he had wanted to, he could have led an uprising. But what does he do? He goes and dies upon the cross. When he dies upon the cross, their dreams die with him. But Jesus, what they hadn't reckoned with was that he was the ultimate comeback man. He made the ultimate comeback because on the third day after his death, he rose up from the grave. And when he rose up from the dead, their hopes were also resurrected with him. And they began to follow him around. So for 40 days, he was with them. And in Acts 1, it says, he talked to them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And they were hoping that, you know, he would get it. Then on the last day, he says, okay, gather on together. Let me tell you something. He said, listen, don't go anywhere, but wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Because John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they immediately thought, maybe this is our cue. So they said, is that when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But he dashed their hopes for one last time. And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set, but the Holy Spirit is going to come. Let us pause here for a while. If you look at those disciples, I understand their difficulty because they were looking into the future. I don't think there's anybody here who can really predict the future. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can speculate, but we don't know the future. They didn't know the future, but Jesus... He, he saw God's greater plan and purpose. 
He, because they, all they could see was their kingdom. But the problem was that their kingdom, it would benefit only the people of Israel. People like you and me who are heathens, outsiders, we would still be outside. But Jesus, he could see God's greater plan. A greater kingdom that would supersede, would be greater than the kingdom of Israel. And that kingdom, through that kingdom, they would be blessing through the gospel for all mankind. So that nobody would be an outsider anymore. As Paul says in Colossians that we who were far have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. Jesus could see that. He could see God's greater plan. But he couldn't tell them. They, all they saw was their thing. But Jesus was seeing something that was greater. And he would let them into that story much later. But anyway, when Jesus died and he rose again from the dead... I'm not talking about the spiritual aspect of the day of Pentecost. We'll go into that later. But what happened, he ascended to heaven. And after that, life continued as normal for the people of Israel. Romans were still there. Nothing changed. They were still oppressing people. Then about 35 years after uh, Jesus ascended to heaven, around the year 70 AD, the Israelites had one last uprising. And this time, the Romans thought they had enough for all these uprisings. So they sent for the general Titus from Rome. And Titus came marching with his legions. And Titus was known for his exceptional brutality. He came and he began to kill all the Jewish people he could find. He, he began to kill them, slaughter them by the thousands. He began to destroy the cities. And in fact, he reduced the city of Jerusalem into rubble. To such an extent that even today, 2,000 years later, if you go to Israel, you see archaeologists trying to, you know, sift through the ruins and trying to figure out where the different buildings and places mentioned in the Bible were. They still don't know. A lot of those things are still hidden in mystery because Titus destroyed everything. And one of the results was the Jewish diaspora. I mean, those Jews, they were spread all over the world. And it was only after 2,000 years that only two of the 12 tribes could come back to what we now know as the land of Israel. But anyway, I don't want to go into that because I want you to know that the Jewish people, they are the people of the future after the rapture of the church. They are the ones who will carry the torch, so as to say. And their time hasn't come as yet, and God is going to use them. Praise God for that. He has a plan and a purpose for that. But now I want to talk about this here because that, that is the greater plan and the purpose of God. But they couldn't see it. But Jesus saw it because Jesus knows the future as good as he knows the past. So he was saying that, listen, uh, it's not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set by his own power. But he says, but I tell you what, soon the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Now, this was something very astounding because the Holy Spirit is the, uh, you see, there is only one God. There is one God, but he has revealed himself as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and when we say the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, we don't mean that he's like a junior partner. Yeah, many of us think that the Father is like this old guy on a throne with a frown, permanent frown on his head. He gave the Ten Commandments. He's perpetually mad at all of us. And thank God for Jesus because he intercedes for 
with the Father first. If it wasn't for him, we would, our goose would be cooked, you know? So Jesus is the nice guy. He understands us because he was actually here with us, you know? Became one of us. And then the Holy Ghost is this thing that kind of floats around, you know? We can't really pin him down, and he comes, and sometimes he shows up in church, and we go, shoot, ba ba ba, cuckoo, and we feel, oh God, Woo. the Holy Ghost was here, and we say, we go, man, that felt good, ooh, I feel it, and then we hope he'll be back next Sunday again, you know, so we all, this Holy Ghost would come, and, and you know, and, uh, uh, and then, of course, if he doesn't come, some preachers, they try to fake it, you know, kind of, you know, they're saying, fake it till you make it, so if you, if you kind of fake it, then, He'll show up and then, but we can't really pin him down. But listen, the Holy Spirit is a person. Just like God the Father is a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. But the difference is this. Here's the difference. The main thing is that the Father is in heaven on the throne. Jesus is at his right hand side, but the Holy Spirit is here. And so everything that the Father and the Son do or speak in our lives they do through the Holy Spirit. And that's why our personal relationship with the Holy Spirit is of utmost importance. Our success in life, our ability to fulfill the purposes of God in life, both for us as individuals and for us as a church, as a congregation, it depends to a great extent upon our personal relationship with the Holy Spirit and how much room we give him in our lives and how yielded, how submitted we are to him. Because he's saying when the Holy, Go- the Holy Ghost is going to come, but he says he's going to come and he makes it personal upon you. So it's not just like a general coming of the Holy Spirit that he's around, but he wants to come upon me and upon you. And upon you, and upon you, and upon you. And it's a challenge for each one of us personally. And I want to challenge you personally uh, with this, that uh, how, it's not how much of the Holy Ghost you have, but how much of you does the Holy Ghost possess? How much of you does the Holy Ghost have? That's what it's really, it comes down. How much of me does the Holy Ghost have? So, then the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. And it's, the, it's that experience Jesus wants us to experience. He wants the Holy Ghost to come upon us and to consume us. And he said, when he comes upon you, this is going to happen. You shall receive power. And that word power uh, is the Greek word dynamis. And that is the word that is used when, when Jesus, remember when Jesus was going to the village of uh, of. Uh, uh, Jairus to raise up his daughter and, and the woman with the issue of blood came and touched his garment and she said if I can touch his garment I shall be made whole and when she touched his garment this, the, the, the King James Version calls it virtue or power flowed from his garment and touched her and she was healed so what Jesus is saying that you remember that divine substance that flowed from me to that woman and healed her when she touched me. When the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, you shall receive that same divine substance. The same thing that flowed from me shall flow from you. That is the promise. And you know, there are two reasons why most people don't experience that. The first reason is that the Holy Spirit doesn't have enough of them. They have a little bit. 
enough for us to come Sunday morning and go, Shiba Baba Shanda, I got it. You'd have got nothing. You just got a couple of sprinkling. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, you're out there and you feel a couple of drops of rain. You say, oh, it's raining. It's not raining, you dummy. You just feel a couple of drops. But there's a deluge that wants to come over you. Amen. Out of your innermost being shall rivers of living water flow forth. That, that is what he's talking about. So he says, when the Holy Ghost shall come upon. So the, the first issue is the, is the, is the issue of uh, how much of me does the Holy Ghost have? That's the first issue. The second issue is that very often our expectations don't rise to the level of God's promises. Jesus said... When the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, you shall receive dynamis power. That is brute force in today's language. You shall receive power. Do I really believe that? Because if I am totally surrendered to the Holy Spirit to the best of my ability and, and there's, a, there's a daily sanctification and consecration that goes on in my life as I walk with Jesus and slowly the Holy Spirit has more and more of me. If we live in that process and then we, we stretch out and reach out in faith and we believe that the Spirit of God lives within me and that the same power that flows through Jesus shall flow through me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is when we will begin to experience that flow. When the Holy Ghost shall come, you shall receive power. And then he tells us why we shall receive power. So that you can be my witnesses. The word witness here means somebody who can give evidence in court of somebody, something that he has seen and experienced. Hallelujah. I can give evidence to people and tell them that Jesus Christ is dead and he rose again from the dead. I can tell people that, uh, th that Jesus Christ, he was whipped and bruised and beaten, taking your diseases and your sicknesses upon his own self, that he was nailed to the cross, bearing your sins, and that he died upon the cross, and then he went to Hades, and he rose up from the dead, and that he's alive today. That is the gospel story, and I can tell that story because I have experienced it, because firsthand, I know Jesus has saved me from my sins, and he has healed me and he has touched me and changed my life so I have received the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit so I can be a witness of Jesus and I can testify before the whole world and tell them that this Jesus who you don't believe in is not a figment of somebody's uh, imagination but he is the one who died and who is alive today because he has touched me and he can touch you Hallelujah. You know, I can give you many examples. Like, for example, I told the Bible school students yesterday, uh, you know, my wife is from Sweden. I lived 20 years of my life there, so uh, that's home for me. And we, I go to Sweden every year. And, uh, and just before COVID, the last time I was there, uh, I arrived and I was walking to a, there's like a mini shopping mall and I heard a voice, Brother Christopher, and I looked and I saw this face I didn't recognize. I said, excuse me, did you call my name? He said, Brother Christopher, don't you know me? I said, I'm sorry. Then he gave his name. He said, I'm Husro. Oh, Husro. He was an Iranian guy, a very intelligent guy. And about 36, 38 years ago, he was living in uh, 
the student housing in Uppsala, Sweden. And I, I went to the student housing, uh, knocking on people's door and sharing Christ with them. And I happened to meet this guy, and he was so smart. I mean, he was so, in, you know how some people are so intelligent? They're like mad scientists, you know, like the, like the guy in Back to the Future. You know, that? It, it was like that. He was like that. And so he was like, you know, he was like smart to the point of being crazy. And he talked circles around me. I'm talking about Jesus, and he's talking circles around me until finally I decided to give up. I said, you know what, I, I think I'm wasting my time. I'm about to leave. Then I said, you know, there's something wrong with you. He said, well, you're sitting funny. He said, well, I, I, I can't walk. And he's, I'm, he said, I'm, he didn't say that. He said, I'm crippled or something like that. I said, what happened? He said, I was born with this defect. And, and he began to explain, and they're going to do surgeries on me, it's a long, like seven, eight surgeries, and before then, then I can maybe walk with support. I said, you know, you can walk right now. He said, really? I, I said, listen, I've been telling you about Jesus, and you've been talking circles around me, and I give up. If you're making a point, you're smarter than me, you are. You are smarter than me. But I said, I have something. I said, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a healer. He said, I know that. I said, I said if I lay hands on you and ask Jesus to heal you, uh, will you believe in him? He said, of course. So I laid hands on him, prayed for him in the name of Jesus, and I left. A week later, somebody else met him and said, hey, I met that guy, Khusro. I said, uh, what happened? He said, he's up and walking. He's perfectly normal. And he said, who's a guy? Uh, and he described me. He said, he came and laid hands on me, and now I'm well. So, so, so this was this guy. So I said, so Khusro, what are you doing? He said, I haven't seen you for all these years. He said, yeah, we've all grown older and all that. So I said, what are you doing these days? He said, well, I'm in such and such church. I'm, 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 I'm in the leadership there, and I lead the prayer ministry there and begin to talk about his family, his son. They were all, you know, serving God. And, and I thought, you know, this guy, all I had to do was give him evidence that Jesus is alive. Yeah. You know, but, you know, I've had people say, what if he wouldn't be healed? How dumb are you? He was healed. <laughs> what if? What if I, you know, some people are so negative. There's always the worst not if, you know, negative, pessimistic, what if scenario. What if people do get, do get healed if you lay hands on them? What if they do get healed? And they will get healed because Jesus didn't say, you shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses and nothing shall happen. He didn't say that. He gave us power to heal the sick, power to cast out devils. Jesus said, if you believe in me, the same things that I do, you shall also do because I go unto my Father. We have received power so that we can be witnesses for Jesus. That is the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us where we shall be witnesses. He said, in Jerusalem, which was their home turf. For the Jewish people, that was their home turf. Then he said in Judea, which was the greater, uh, you know, area where the Jewish people lived. And then in Samaria. Now Samaria, that's, that's enemy territory. There are people who have a different religion. You know, they have a totally different set of beliefs. Remember the Samaritan woman, what she said to Jesus? Why are you even talking to me? Because my people and your people have nothing to do with each other. We don't like each other. We worship on this mountain. You worship in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses in Samaria. Right? 
Now, who are our Samaritans? Should I be blunt and say it? Who do Americans consider the enemies? Muslims. It's getting quiet here. I feel the temperature drop. But most people, even Christians, unfortunately, they say, oh, Muslims are the enemy. You ask them, they'll get going. They think that the guy in the 7-Eleven, he has some sinister design to kill everybody in Boise. You know, people have that. People live. You know, once I was preaching in a church in Ohio, and the pastor told me that a guy came to church wearing a gun. He said, this Arab preacher is preaching. If he does something funny, I want to be sure that I'm packing some heat there. I said to the pastor, did he do that? He said, that's how dumb people are. He was a member in his church. First he refused to come, then his wife said, I'm going. Then he, he came with a gun to protect her, you know, in case this Arab preacher does something. But you see, see, the thing is that, here's the point. The missions field is here. People have come here from all over the world. And if you ignore them, you know what happened? You just push them further away. Jesus told us to love people, reach out to them. You know, let me tell you, if you befriended a Muslim, you'll find out how kind and generous and friendly those people are. Most people have never even spoken to them. They've been to a convenience store and they see them and, and they never even ask, hey, how are you? Where are you from? Welcome to the United States. How's your family doing? Love to meet you and talk to you sometime. Want to hear your story. These are things. People, you know, let me tell you, it doesn't matter who they are. People always respond to kindness and warmth. Amen. Amen. People, listen, people always, doesn't matter who they are, what their color is, what their nationality or ethnicity is. People, look, I won't tell you, I was one of them. I, I did the whole jihad thing when I was 19. Okay? But I'm standing here preaching about Jesus. Do you know why? Because there was an Englishman who decided that I was not his enemy. Amen. And in December 95, he told me about Jesus. And I responded to the story of Jesus. I gave my life to Jesus, and I'm here today. <laughs> Praise God. The gospel story is so powerful that when it is preached, people always respond to it because the Holy Spirit goes right hand in hand with the gospel story and he convicts people of their need of salvation. Amen. That's what Jesus said. When the Holy Ghost shall come, he shall convict people. When you begin to tell people the story of the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and how he loves sinners and how he died to save them and heal them and set them free, there is something that stirs in the heart of every sinner irrespective of his nationality and his beliefs and they are drawn to the cross. That is called conviction and people become aware of their need of forgiveness of sin. That is the power of the gospel. Amen. Amen. So Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit so we can be witnesses 
for him, telling people about him in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, the farthest corner of the earth. And I've been to a couple of those places that qualify as the uttermost part of the earth. One, one place, uh, uh, and I'm going to close with this, one place I went to is called, was called Irian Jaya. Irian Jaya is the easternmost part of Indonesia. It's the western half of the island of Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is largely civilized, but Irian Jaya is still wild. When they took me there and they said to me, he said, brother, the people walk around without clothes. I mean, I've seen nudist beaches in Europe, but this was different, you know. <laughs> People walking around in the nude. They don't wear clothes. And he says, and in the interior, they're cannibals. I said, you're taking me there? <laughs> you know, the pastor said to me, he said, you are safe. I said, why? Is it the anointing? He said, no, no, they only eat white people. <laughs> and I said, hallelujah. <laughs> Thank God for this. <laughs> I coined a slogan, white people, the other white meat. <laughs> so when I landed at the airport, this guy comes in wearing absolutely nothing except Ray-Ban sunglasses <laughs> and and New York Yankees baseball cap. <laughs> and I said to the pastor, American culture has reached this place before the gospel. <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> but I preached there, did altar calls, people got saved. And, uh, but anyway, another place, uttermost parts of the earth. I remember when I was a little kid, I don't know how old I was. Maybe I was seven, eight, six. I, you know, I was very small. Now, my dad was transferred to a country called, which is now known as Bangladesh. At that time, it was known as East Pakistan. So we went there, and one day, and my dad had taught me to, he loved guns and hunting, so I do too. So I used to, you know, hunt and shoot since I could walk. And, and so dad said, we are going on an elephant hunt. I said, wow, elephant hunt. Are we going to shoot elephants? He said, no, no, we are not going to shoot elephants. But what they do, he says, these jungles here in Southeast Asia, they are teeming with wild elephants. So they had to have these expeditions in which they go and they capture these wild elephants. And then they, they train this. They kind of put every wild elephant between two domesticated trained elephants. And those two elephants, they kind of put it at ease, then they train it. and you know, just build a relationship with it until that elephant is tame. And then these elephants are used uh, where trucks and motor vehicles and tractors cannot go up in the mountains. They haul logs and farmers use them to plow their fields. That's what they do in Southeast Asia. They use these elephants. So we, we drove two days through the jungle, thick jungle. We drove two days until we crossed the border and we came into Burma, which you 
is also known as Myanmar, if you know where that is. So we came into Myanmar. And I remember when we crossed the border into Burma, uh, I, was, I was just a little kid. I was not like spiritually perspective, but I heard, I don't know whether it was a voice or a perception or something said to me that one day you're going to come back to this country and you're going to do some big things here. And that thing came and it flashed through my mind and it went away. And I didn't think of it later until about 38, 40 years later, I was in Burma preaching the gospel. And I remember when I landed in Rangoon Airport, that voice, suddenly that memory came back to me and I knew this was destiny. I was sent here by God. Anyway, so what happens now is I did an indoor crusade there and we had many people saved and healed and immediately the military found out and they began to, I had left the country but they arrested the pastors who had worked with me and they were beaten and tortured. It was very bad and, uh, because there was strong persecution of Christians. And so they, uh, the pastors wrote to me, and they said, can you wait a year before you come back until things cool down? So I came back the next year. A year later I was back and when I was back, uh, I remember one of the very first days when I was praying, suddenly I had an open vision. Now, an open vision is like, uh, it's not like a dream. It's like I'm wide awake. I'm standing here, but I don't see you. But I see the vision that God is showing me, and that is my reality, but I can't see you, if you know what I mean. So in five days, I had three open visions, and uh, I had, I'm not one who sees open visions, but in five days, I had three open visions. And uh, uh, one of those, I don't want to go into all of them, but in one of those open visions, the Lord spoke to me. He said, I want you to come back to Burma and start doing crusades and start planting churches. And I said, Lord, that's a great idea, but I'm not your man. Find somebody else. <laughs> and the Lord says, why? I said, because, you know, I like my life. I uh, I don't fancy being tortured, and, and I've been to prison once. I don't want to go to prison again. I might, you know, they might kill me, and I'm not a glutton for punishment right now, you know. Uh, I, I love my family. I want to be home. I like living in America. It's a good life. And, and the Lord said, uh, well, do you remember what you said to me? This is an open vision. The Lord is speaking to me. He says, uh, do you remember what you said in in the summer of 1977. And I said, oh, please, don't bring that up. <laughs> now, what had happened, I was saved in December 75. 1976, I was in prison. In 1977, I had escaped, and I was living in Belgium and Holland. I was with an organization called Operation Mobilization. And the founder, George Verwer, he was like an absolute, he's 85, 86 years old, he's still equally fanatic as he was then. He has not slowed down. And he used to preach to us. He says, you kids growing up in Western cultures, living in comfort, you know, your life is worth nothing unless you're willing to lay down your life and die for Jesus. I mean, he said things that he could be sued for by Americans today, you know. <laughs> he really challenged us and, you know, with the cause of missions. And, and then uh, somehow out of 7,000 young people there, I was introduced to him, and he took an interest in me, and he told me, you must read this book. It was called The Calvary Road. It was about dying to the self, about the crucified life. And I remember I read the first chapter, then I, the rest of the book I read with tears flowing down my cheeks on my, on my knees. 
And by the time I finished the Calvary Road, I was totally wrecked. When I gave him the book back, he said, no, keep it. I've got another book for you. And looked at the title, and the title about killed me. The title was Come, Live, and Die. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm reading Come, Live, and Die. By the time I'm finished with Come, Live, and Die, I'm looking for some place where I can go and die, you know. <laughs> God, send me somewhere I can die. And then one night, George gives an altar call, and I, you know, I was young. I, at that, when I finished the book, I know I'm going to live single my whole life like the Apostle Paul, and like the Apostle Paul was beheaded, I'd probably be killed by somebody someplace, you know. And that's how my life will be terminated, and I'm going to, you know, I, that was my vision until I met Britta, of course. Everything changes, changed then, you know, when I met my wife in Sweden. But anyway, so what happened, he gave like an altar call, something like, you know, I'm talking about, this was 1977, how many of you are willing to lay down your life, you're willing to die, and you will go anywhere, Jesus send me. And I, stupid as I was, I got up, I ran to the front, knelt, and with tears flying down my cheeks, I said words I've regretted ever since. <laughs> I said, Jesus, send me wherever you want me to go. I'm ready to die for you. I said, Lord, if you don't want to use me, kill me right here. But I'm willing to go. And I said those things. And uh, anyway, <laughs> now all those years later, the Lord is saying, do you remember? I said, yeah, but you know, it was... <laughs> I said, Lord, that's the stupidity of youth. I mean... Come on, Lord, you know, I mean, you are good and merciful. I mean, I was young, stupid, and uh, I meant those things then, but I don't mean those things now. <laughs> then the Lord said to me, what did Kenneth Hagin teach you? To take my word as it is. And you have learned, you always take my word. Whenever you want something, you point to my word. So can't I take you at your word? I said, okay. 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 I said, I'm also smart, you know. So I said, okay, but I will go on one condition, that the Holy Ghost goes with me. Amen. But I said, but, here's the caveat, not the Holy Ghost of the American churches. Where people, you line people up, then you touch them, and if they don't fall, you kind of give them some help. <laughs> yeah. And then the people who are courtesy drop. Then the usher puts a tablecloth on, if it's ladies, they put it on their legs. I said, I said, Lord, that kind of thing won't cut any ice in Burma. Here they'll torture you, kill you. I said, I want the book of Acts, Holy Ghost. Book of Acts. And the Lord said, okay, fine. So I was back the next year, and I'm doing my first crusade. Well, I preached, there were lots, of place was packed out. I did my man preached, altar call, then I'm praying for the sick. And what they did, somehow the ushers had the sick all on one side, and you know, they were just going past me. I was laying hand, people getting healed. Then out of the corner of my eye, I see a man. He is dressed, dressed in these striped hospital pajamas. There's two people holding IV bottles. And, and he looked like a skeleton. I mean, he looked like he was, a, he was a dead body. And three people were propping him up. And I was looking at him, I, and I'm thinking, what is this, you know? And then suddenly, while I'm praying for people, I see this guy, he just slides to the floor and lays like spread eagle with his eyes and his mouth wide open. 
and then somebody shouts, and very few people spoke English. And there were eight or ten people in the crowd who were doctors and nurses. They all went there, and they began to do their thing, you know. And I'm watching them, and they're doing their thing until one of them who spoke English turned to me, and he shouted so everyone could hear. He said, Pastor, he's dead. And... I said, well, if he's dead, do something. My wife is an RN. And I watch these medical shows with her. And I know when someone dies, they do this massage thing, you know? Now, I can, I can only do the Pentecostal massage, you know? She And it works. When I do Pentecostal massage, things happen. And so, but I said, but he said, Pastor, he's dead. He's, and then they all got up and went back to their seats. And, and so my thought was, okay, this guy's dead. They leave the body there. I'll pray for other people, and they'll forget about him. I'll close the meeting. Everyone will go home. One of the ushers, he grabbed the dead man by the wrist and dragged him across the floor and put him right in front of the platform. Now I have to do something. Everybody's watching. And my first thought was, I went to Rama. They taught me nothing about this. <laughs> Did they teach you, Pastor Mark, when you went to school there? They didn't teach him either. They're missing out on something. They taught us all kinds of stuff, but except this, and this is what I needed. And I'd never had a person die in my meeting, and I had no idea what I was going to do. I'd never heard or met anyone who had raised anyone from the dead. I didn't know what to do. And I thought, something has to happen here. This is a Pentecostal meeting. Nobody should die in a Pentecostal meeting. What should I do? And suddenly I had an idea. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do something, but I'm going to make a royal fool of myself. But once the cat is out of the bag, you can do it loud and proud. You don't really care, you know? So I took the microphone to my mouth, and you know what I said? I said, And my interpreter said, what was that, Pastor? I said, I don't have a clue. Uh, uh, he said, should I sit down? I said, no, no, you stay with me. I will need you. And then I launched into, because see, here's the thing. When you don't know what to do, the Holy Ghost always knows. So I just did stood there, and I went, all these people watching me, nobody left. And I, I just went on and on, and after about 10, 15 minutes, I began to feel warm in my body. And I thought, mm-mm, because when you feel the heat, you know God is fixing to do something. So I'm now praying louder, shake it. I said, I'm going to pray until something happens, you know. I'm going to go on as long as it takes until something happens, until the Holy Ghost comes, because I don't know what to do. So I said, oh, Now some of you are thinking of leaving, don't leave, okay? I'm perfectly normal. This is the Holy Ghost. And I went, maybe 45 minutes, 50 minutes, one hour, I don't know. I went on and on, and my eyes were closed. I was just shouting, and then suddenly I heard a shout, hallelujah, and I opened my eyes. It was the dead man. He had shot up from the floor, and he was standing in front of me with his hands in the air. And he was shouting and praising God. You know, that's all I wanted. From there, I, in a time of 
terrible persecution. I went all over Burma. I preached the gospel. In the subsequent years, we saw at least four people raised from the dead. I saw God do creative miracles. Once I know the army came to arrest me because they had warned me not to preach, but I preached anyway. And they, they were standing there, and there was a woman with, an, with a sock, empty socket. Somebody had shot an arrow. Her eye was gone, and God created a brand new eye. Then the army quickly left, you know. They were so scared. So I saw lame people walk and deformed children healed, blind eyes open, deaf. I mean, God did all kinds of miracles. And, but the greatest thing was, during those years of persecution, we planted at least 178 churches all over the nation. Hallelujah. As I stand here before you, I can tell you, if you were to ask me what I learned through that, I can't write, write a book on how to raise the dead. I've seen quite a number of people raised from the dead, but I, I can't write a book on it. Those are things that God just does. But I can tell you what I've learned. One thing I've learned is that Jesus Christ is still the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he is alive today in this place. And he said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. That means Jesus is alive and is here in our midst right now. Hallelujah. that he occupies the same space and the same segment of time as we do, and our paths intersect. And when that happens, miracles are going to happen in our lives. Jesus Christ has not changed. He's the same exactly like he was in the days of the Gospels. Amen. And that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he's alive and he's here. That's the one thing I've learned. The second thing I've learned is that the word of God is true. This book, the Bible, that has been debated by many and discussed is the word of the living God and every word in it is as true and as life-giving and as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. And when we speak the word of God with our mouths, stuff happens. Amen. When we preach the gospel, God confirms his word with miracles. Amen. The third thing I've learned is that the Holy Ghost who came down on the day of Pentecost is still here. He is still the same. And when he lives in us and he consumes us, Hallelujah. He fills us with power and he uses us. We have been baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Amen. Hallelujah. Everything that is in the Bible is available to us today. If you believe, all things are possible. Let's bow our heads together.